Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the VR1 NFT podcast, and I'm your host. This is where we live. We want to thank you guys for stopping by. I swear to God. There we go. I finally got it. I had a hair stuck in my mic. And I've been staring at it for the last two days. And I'm like, what the heezy. But for today, we are going to do a module. Even though I'm going to give you guys part of the psychology series. We're going to do a module. And we're going to select strategy tools. Log on to mindtools.com. Download the app. You can find us on the Google uh, Play Store or download us on iTunes or Amazon Prime or anywhere where you download your apps. We are available. As a matter of fact, Puppy, let me have those uh, shades, please. Thank you. So give me one quick second as I get myself prepared for today. I'm not drinking orange soda today, even though we are doing some orange modules. But um, I was just having a quick conversation with my with my child because you know sometimes we can be kind of indoctrinated into thinking certain things, and I, for one myself, as I matured, I had to overcome a lot of insecurities, you know, and the way that I handled it was by facing them head on. So, like, if you have an insecurity about something, just face it. Like, if you are afraid of speaking in public, my best advice to you would be to start speaking in public. You know? Um, I remember seeing a clip from the movie that started uh, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. And in the movie, they're having these long-winded conversations between both characters, right? And um, in one scene, Adam Driver says, okay, I guess we're supposed to talk. So how do we start? How do we do it? Like, or can we start? Something to that nature. And basically, that's my approach. Anytime I have some bullshit-ass fucking insecurity, I just face that shit. You know, like, if you're afraid of water, you need to learn how to swim and swim so you can see that it's, it's not that serious all right so let's go module by module and we're going to select one i have a few things in mind so we'll see what we can come up with so we have core competencies analysis um papa the headphones please use your headphones um we have scenario analysis we have Porter's Generic Strategies, Midsburg's 5Ps of Strategies, Midsburg's Organizational Configurations, Value Chain Analysis, Mullen's 7 Domains Models, Mission Statements and Vision Statements. We did that already. Carter's 10Cs of Supplier Evaluation, Keller's Brand Equity Model, Plan, Do, Check, Act, The Raider Model, the Theory of Constraints, Deming's 14-point philosophy. Let's do the Theory of Constraints, right? Actually, we have done this module. 
Actually, you know what? Let, let's um, let's do it. Let's work on that module very quickly. Let's go to Google News. See what we got over there. Right. This way we could kind of check out the landscape of the world real quick. But um. I want to preload this and um, let me see. Let's go with, let's check technology first and then, um, We'll go to our breakdown. PlayStation has a new controller. Apple delays its, its headset until June. Okay. So we'll do those two quick um modules. What do you guys want to start with? Let's start with the PlayStation DualSense Edge review. Right? Let's check that out. Now we'll give you guys something very quickly. Just just two two quick excerpts. We're gonna look into the Apple um headpiece so here we go this article is brought to you by sam rutherford and let's see what he's talking about the original xbox elite controller came out way back in 2015 so it's a wonder why sony took so long to release his own take on a premium game pack but now that the PlayStation 5 is more widely available, kind of, the company is finally ready to show the world what it can do. While the $200 DualSense Edge costs a bit more than its rival, it offers a few nifty features you don't get on Microsoft's controller, combined with one potentially major shortcoming design for the edge sony didn't stray much from its default template from the top the edge looks almost exactly the same aside from a black d-pad and face buttons and a black touchpad adorned with a subtle pattern featuring the company's signature triangle square circle and x icons where things get interesting is when you notice the two little nubs that stick out below the analog sticks, which are function buttons reserved for changing your controller's buttons assignments. Can you tell which one is which? Hint, the edge 
is on the right. In back there are two switches on either side next to the shoulder triggers for adjusting their pull length along with slots to accommodate the gamepad's removable rear paddles. The controller comes with two sets of rear paddles, longer, more traditional levers, and short stubby half domes, the latter of which ended up being my favorite. You also get a total of three different joystick nubs, standard short stem convex and long stem convex that can be swapped out on the fly and a cable lock which can prevent the included USB-C cord from getting pulled out by accident. Both the thumbsticks and rear paddles attach magnetically which makes it super simple to test out different layouts before finding a combo you like. The long stem dome thumbstick can be helpful for snipers in shooting games, especially if you prefer playing at lower sensitivities. But I was less concerned with trying to get an edge than I was with making the controller as comfortable as possible. The back of the DualSense Edge features switches for adjusting the pull length of the triggers and magnetic slots for accommodating the controller's rear paddles. One of the Edge's highlight features are those fully replaceable analog sticks. By sliding the release toggle in back, the shroud around the analog sticks lifts off revealing removable modules that attach via USB-A and can be changed out in seconds. This means when you start to experience some controller drift, which you will given enough wear and tear, you can simply buy replacement thumbstick modules that cost $20 each. For hardcore gamers that put in hundreds of thousands of hours into their consoles, this can represent huge savings over time. If one joystick starts to get a bit wonky, just switch it out or replace both sticks at the same time and get almost a brand new gamepad. Finally, to round everything out, the Edge comes with a hard shell carrying case that looks and feels like an extra large space egg. It has a, a lightly padded interior and a small mesh pocket for any additional accessories you might need, like the included charging cable. There is also a nifty Velcro pass-through flap in the back that allows you to route a cord inside so you can charge the controller while it remains tucked safely inside the case. Software and Features In the PS5 setting menu, you can easily do stuff like remap the edges buttons or create a number of quick presets. Another big advantage the Edge has over rivals, especially third-party offerings like Scuf Reflex, 
is the ability to set custom button configurations. The PS5 supports four quick set options and has the ability to save even more in settings. Switching layouts takes less than a second and is as simple as pressing either one of the function buttons and one face button at the same time. I also appreciate that the PS5 pops out a simple walkthrough on how to set everything the first time you connect the controller. And whenever you want to revisit your button presets, all you have to do is open the console's setting menu. Other handy features include the ability to customize your joystick sensitivity, adjust their dead zone, and even set the actuation point for the triggers. So depending on your preferences, you can tell the controller to ignore shallow pulls to avoid inadvert presses. This also works in conjunction with the slider on the back of the controller, which can change the physical travel distance of the triggers in three distances, short, medium, and long, which is nice when switching from a racing game where you want the full analog feedback and an FPS when you want a real hair trigger setup. In-game, unlike the standard version, the DualSense Edge features a couple of small design tweaks, including a black D-pad, black buttons, and a black touchpad with a subtle PlayStation icon pattern. When you get around to actually using the Edge, gaming with it almost feels like having a Swiss Army knife. Sure, it looks and feels like a standard dual sense, but when you run into an awkward situation, the gamepad always seems to have a solution. For example, some of my first console shooters were Turok, Dinosaur Haunter, and Goldeneye on the N64. So I've always preferred what gamers often call a southpaw joystick setup which means aiming with the left joystick and moving with the right. Unfortunately, not every shooter supports this layout. But with the DualSense, I can use it in whatever game I want. Additionally, while the DualSense deep triggers are great for racing games, that long pull is kind of annoying in fighters or beat-em-ups like Streets of Rage 4. But simply by moving the toggles in back, I can significantly shorten the pull, making things feel snappier and more responsive. A highlight feature on the DualSense Edge is replaceable joystick modules that can be swapped out for just $20. Now, I should mention that some other premium controllers, like the Xbox Elite Series 2, 
offer multiple D-pad options, but in my opinion, both of them are worse than Sony's arrow-shaped version. And while I'll probably never use the cable lock, I can see it being useful in tournament settings where you want the confidence of a wired connection but don't want to worry about your USB cable getting yanked out by accident. My one small complaint is that I wish you could assign custom actions to the little function nubs. Right now they're dedicated to switching button presets and there's no way to change that, which seems like a bit of a waste. There are two nubs at least. Let me use one of them as an extra button, especially since I feel like they're the perfect location for launching grenades in shooters. Battery life. While it may not be an important feature to everyone, the DualSense Edge comes with a cable lock that can be used to ensure its USB cord isn't yanked out by accident. The DualSense Edge's biggest weakness is its battery life, which is somehow worse than the standard PS5 controller. On average, I was getting around 5 to 6 hours of use on a single charge, compared to 6 or 7 for the regular DualSense. And that's just frustrating, because not only does the Edge cost more than twice as much, the type of people that would pay big money for a premium controller are also quite likely to engage in marathon gaming sessions. And there are few things more annoying than having to scramble for USB cord when your controller dies in the middle of the firefight. Thankfully, the Edge comes with a lengthy 10-foot USB cable. So even if it runs out of juice, you'll probably still be able to plug it in and have the cable reach your couch. The wrap-up. At $200, Sony's DualSense Edge is the company's take on a premium gamepad for the PS5. While the idea of paying $200 for a fancy controller might seem like a bit much, and it kind of is, after using the DualSense Edge, I can see the appeal. It offers a familiar design with a handful of extra features, including easy button remapping, multiple joystick nubs, customizable rear paddles, and more. And the Edge is actually a tiny bit cheaper than some third-party options like those from Scuf, which doesn't have replaceable joystick modules. Its short battery life is definitely a downer, and I would have liked to see Sony include support for a second pair of paddles in the back, like you get on of other 
premium game pads. But if I had to choose just one controller to use with my PS5 until it dies, the DualSense Edge would be it. Okay, pretty interesting article. I kind of disagree because if the battery sucks, I'd rather use the, the original factory one. You know, when you get to my age, you kind of go with things that are practical. So, with our second article of the day, we're going to go to MacRumors.com. Please log on to MacRumors.com and check it out. Apple delays debut of AR VR headset until June. Apple is now planning to introduce its AR VR headset in June instead of April. According to Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, with the debut of the device pushed back two months, it is expected to see an unveiling at the Worldwide Developers Conference. Apple initially planned to reveal the AR VR headset at an April event but it is no longer going to be able to make that timeline and decided to delay it earlier this month. After continued product testing, Apple determined that there are still hardware and software issues that need to be fixed. This is not the first time that Apple has pushed back the launch timeline for the headset. With the company originally planning to introduce it in mid-2022. The timeline shifted to January 2023, later in 2022, than April 2023, and now June 2023. It is not clear what the delay means for a prospective spring event, as... Apple has few other major device updates in the works, but we could potentially see a 15-inch MacBook Air and the launch of the new Apple Silicon Mac Pro. After the headset is shown off at WWDC, Apple will continue to work on it before putting it up for sale later in the year. German cautions that the timing of the launch could change again, but Apple wants to have it available for purchase by the end of 2023, if at all possible, because it is the headline product of the year. Apple is still working to fix problems with the hand and eye control functions. Rumors suggest that users will be able to control the headset with both eye movement and hand gestures, selecting an app with a glance and then activating it with a pinch gesture, for example. When it launches, the headset is expected to be priced somewhere around $3,000, which will limit its appeal to consumers. Apple is already working on a second-generation device that will be more affordable. More information on Apple's AR VR headset development can be found in our dedicated roundup. Now, $3,000, I think it's, it's a little over the top, especially for something that obviously has some, some issues. So let's check our Timer counter. 
Okay, so before we go into today's module, let's uh, pause our first segment. We'll be back with our second segment in the New York Minute. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I have my my module preloaded here. If the app reset it, I'm going to choose a different module. If I could identify what module to select today, we're not going to go with strategy tools, right? Let's go with stress management. Um, let's go with Albrook's four types of stress. And we'll, we'll use that as our foundation. So let me relax myself, make myself comfortable so we can rock and roll. Drink a little bit of this coffee. So... Nice little stretch, and I want to welcome you all inside of my beautiful mind. Of course, a part of me is telling me, no, this is business, you know, I should focus on that, but at the same time, there is so much that I want to cover. And again, I was having this conversation with my with my youngest son earlier today. Last night, I'm writing this article, and I'm doing a study on Xerxes the Great, the Persian Empire, um, a few empires that came before. So I was somewhere like around 600 BC. So I'm studying all the way through, right? And I'm going to go right past Jesus Christ, and then I'm going to go back to other empires. Shout out to the Fall of Civilizations podcast. Check out their channel on YouTube. So, I like to learn from these legendary figures. I like to study their life, business-wise, the way that they waged war, and ultimately, you know, what led to the downfall of their empires, right? And the reason why I do that is because I find myself in a position of power with my own family. And because of that, I am facing similar challenges to all of these great legends. And I'm intrigued to know how they use problem-solving skills in order to accomplish things. So, when it comes to my career, everything related to investing or business stems from my music career. Even though I'm so talented in music that it has to be the last thing that I speak about because I surpass everything that is required of an artist. 
where an artist struggles to do music or to do a song or to do an album, for me, it comes natural. I don't have to force my talent. So I have to deal with all of the other nonsense, including the business part, to get to the creative artistic side. But because of my work ethic, my catalog is humongous. Like I have more songs than I know what to do with. And I continue to record every day. The last few days I haven't, but overall every single day. So if I can tell you in one conversation how many times things have changed, it's unbelievable. It's overwhelming. Just in the past few months, if I go as far as two, three years back, everything has completely changed. And in a sense, we're talking about defining an intangible good in the sense that how can I describe something that is continuously changing? You know, in a sense, it's like I'm chasing a rabbit through this rabbit hole. And every time it jumps through the rabbit hole and I chase behind it, it completely changes. So I'm going to try my best to describe what, you know, what I'm trying to say. I spent some time with my family that I haven't seen in a long time. It just so happens one of my family members owns a super, super successful business near my home. This person is directly connected to the entire music industry in America, Europe, and in Latin America. For months and weeks and days and hours and minutes and seconds, I've been praying. I've been reaching out to major, major people about my project. In a sense, you need a curator. You need a middleman or a person that can build that, even that initial bridge. Meaning, just to get to point B or point C, you need to have a staff of people working your project. So, in my desperation, in my entrepreneurial pursuit, I reach out to like major people. We're talking Debbie A, Wendy Day, Dame Dash, Casey Graham. Like these are all household names. Like these people do not need me. At the same time, I cannot undervalue my proposition because if they are able to negotiate and close a deal, these guys charge anywhere from 10 to 15%, in some cases as high as 20%. So long story short, I close a $100 million deal, I'm cutting them a $20 million check. So long story short, I decide to step back. I say, you know what, I'm not going to work with a major. I'm not going to fall into the pitfalls because, like, I had somebody from Warner Brothers offer me $100,000 just for a development deal, right? Now, I countered requesting $400 million because if I'm going to sit down and talk business, we're going to talk about a catalog. I don't want you to sign me 
as an artist, and I don't want you to sign me for a single or an EP, which 100,000 is not even a single. That's like for me to be featured on a record, right? So, obviously, you know, I kind of fell out with the person that was going to arrange that. But I didn't close the door to Warner Brothers. I just closed the door to that particular situation. So, long story short, I come across my relative, and I'm like, not only is he dealing with the people that I have dealt with in the past in the United States market, but he's also connected with the people that I look forward to doing business with in the European market, which I had somebody um, out of London who I also had to kind of removed from my project because this person was not seeing the bigger picture like this person was always asking me for money i'm like listen bro we're negotiating a deal you can make millions of dollars if we close this deal why are you asking me for petty cash you're obviously only thinking about this moment right you're not thinking long term you, you have no vision and um there's other people representing other labels here too and again some of these people i met many years ago i just never thought we would do business in the near future obviously covid19 changed everything so there are people that have pursued me and people that i have pursued that i normally wouldn't have reached out to if, if things were not different so now the opportunity is there. I have the venue to perform and to launch these major, major concerts. I have the opportunity to launch the new technology, which is the, the digital cassettes, which are going to be my marketing strategy because it follows the theme of the original mixtape, the original beginning of my beginnings in music, the double cassette boombox, the JVC, you know, the era from LL Cool J, all the way down to our current times. And, you know, I finally sort of reached an agreement with uh, disc makers. And, you know, those things are not cheap, but it helps me with the art festival that I'm putting together, it helps me with the fact that all of these events can be basically, uh, I guess, showcased all over the world. Because once you build a display, you know, you can lease it from school to school and have every school that has a fundraiser, let them provide the shipping from, you know, one... um from one venue to the next. And my whole goal is to raise money for the arts, right? So everybody that's in the arts can generate money for their school. And my thing is to help, you know, like St. Jude's Children's Hospital, which is my number one charity, but also help like the inner city youth that may not be able to afford tuition, um, get them whatever equipment and supplies that they need 
And it's my way of not only saying thank you to the artistic community, but supporting the artistic community. And at the same time, verifying everything and making the process smoother for World's Guinness. Now, with the actual digital cassette, the, the, the best aspect of the digital cassette is the fact that the, the digital cassette itself has the 2,000 to 2,500 songs that we are trying to get verified. Now, again, because of the cost of every single one, I will be cutting a percentage into the profits of what I would be charging for every performance. So, long story short, what I want to do is basically put that together as part of the event. So, not only do I have a venue where I could do maybe two or three concerts every single week for the first month or two, which that's 24 performances. That's equivalent to an entire tour. And breaking the records, breaking the performance, breaking the technology by giving away the digital cassettes. When I go overseas, I already have a venue there where I could do the exact same thing, where I could kickstart that first month, do the performances, um, provide the, the, the digital cassettes, and then from there, build the footage that I would need to start the networks for other venues that I'm performing in, and also introducing the same technology which has all of the music inside of the digital cassettes. So I thought about not only putting the 2,500 songs on the digital cassette, but also building a website where people could easily upgrade every single time that, you know, one of these things has to be made. So, you know what I'm saying? Um, at the end of the day, the digital cassette is something that will connect you to the to the actual performance. And then for the lifetime that the person owns the NFT, they can connect the digital cassette to our actual website. And after connecting it to the website, they will be able to upload every single new release. So every time I make a, a, a lifetime NFT, they will be able to connect their digital wallet, pay the gas fees, and have access to the new record. So let's say I release a new record every month or something like that. They would get an automatic upgrade. So that mixtape that has up to 16 gigs on its drive, it's only going to be preloaded with about 8 gigs worth of music and my goal is to is to basically um preload it with an additional eight gigs long term meaning they're going to have access to the original catalogs the original masters from the very very beginning so they're going to have my entire career on this digital cassette and then they're going to be able to upgrade and download more material in the future and then once they once they do that, um, they'll be able to to also use media and add their own, let's say, favorite artists during the process. So at the end of the day, all these things are important because we aim to deliver a completely different situation, right? We we aim to 
to build something completely brand new. So I have all of this, right? And I'm asking myself, what do I need to make this possible? Well, for Guinness, what I have to do is wait for them to verify everything. Because I broke so many records and I established so many new ones, they're going to take a longer amount of time. Now, every record has a fee attached to it, on average between 3500 and 5000 So I have to select the first two or three, maybe four of them, to be verified because it's easier for me to pay $20,000 plus tax, let's say $25,000, $30,000, than to pay the full, you know, two hundred to 250000 We're talking about a quarter of a million dollars. The same thing with digital cassettes. You know, if I'm able to sell, if I'm not mistaken, every 500 costs me about, let's say rough estimate, about $5,000, right? So a thousand is $10,000, right? 15,000 is, uh, you know, 1,500. And let's say 20,000 is, is, uh, 2,000, right? 2,000 units. Now, I have to recuperate within the first 500 um, digital cassette sales. I have to recuperate the cost of the additional, you know, whatever it comes down to. Like, let's say the additional 1,500. And again... This is going to be a process that will be a challenge because, you know, automatically the value of those is, you know, between $300 and $600. But that's not necessarily what I could sell them for because they have to be bundled and packaged in in every every venue or every performance that is put together. So, how that would work is, just like um, certifying the records with Guinness, it would be sequential. So, let's say every venue where I, I'm hosting four or 5,000 people, you know, then for that venue, I would probably make, you know, anywhere between 1,500 and 2,000 digital cassettes. And that would be the incentive because some venues, even if the performance fee is lower, I am really going to be making profit with the digital cassettes. So it's like a trade-off. It's kind of hard to explain because we are a technology company, but I also have to have a standard, meaning if I'm going to do... 2,000 digital cassettes and that's the standard then it doesn't matter if I'm doing a show that has 20 or 30,000 people you know if the standard is for me to do 2,000 you know I wouldn't be able to press up more than 4,000 if I deemed it to be feasible so just because I'm doing a venue that has 100,000 people I'm not going to press up more than 4,000 no matter what, 
So I have to use the highest number, which is 4% of the venue at all circumstances. So let's say a venue that has um, 10,000 people, 4% would be 400 units. Let's say 500. So for every 10,000 live attendees, 500 um, 500 uh, units will be pressed up. Now, this doesn't include vinyl, and this does not include CDs, DVDs, and Blu-rays. Those I haven't even factored in. But again, I'm asking myself the question, what can I do to make my dreams happen? What can I do to accomplish this goal? And in a sense, I still have to wait for my passport. I have some business to clear up overseas with some investments that I'm actually cashing out. Now, I'm not completely cashing out my investments, but I'm taking a portion of those investments out, right? And even though I don't want to deal with the headache, I really don't have a choice because I need the money to reinvest that money. So it's like I have a self-imposed headache because I'm stressing to get these these funds or, or this investment capital only to invest in another business, which is a headache all on its own. So I'm inducing like a, like a self-induced coma, worrying about this nonsense. When all I'm going to do is take that money, right, and reinvest that money, which it's, it's not a win and it's not a loss. It's just me being able to keep the business functioning because at the end of the day that's all I'm really doing it's like in a sense of investments I'm only moving um a certain amount of my investment from one investment into the next and then the income that that's going to produce that has to be reinvested so it's like I'm in a continuous cycle of investing, creating profits through dividends and yields to continue to invest, to grow the portfolio, to get into another business, to do the same thing. I literally won't be able to get out of this building stage for the next foreseeable future. We're talking five, six years. So, for example, with my technology company, I'm already six years deep. And I have millions of dollars invested. And I haven't seen a dollar that's returned that I can put in my pocket. Every dollar goes right back into the company. So the same thing is happening with the music. I I can't trust any family. I can't trust any friends because they don't have the education, you know, in business to be able to manage this ever-changing cycle of music. I'm really by myself. You know, I'm able to close my own deals. I like that. I like the creative freedom. I like the full ownership. But every single day, I have to ask myself the tough questions. What can I do today to take this a step further? All I can do at this moment for today, for example, I have a few business meetings, but after those business meetings, at the end of the day, 
what I need to do is record music. And after I record music and I register the songs and I post them for sale, the process begins again because I still have to wait for the passport. I cannot go overseas and have access to these funds to reinvest back into the music career, to create more money to invest back into my career. So these are things that, you know, the average person can't handle because you have to understand, this is why artists will sign a development deal, a management deal, um, or any combination thereof. This is why they throw everything on a manager or a road manager or whoever's overseeing the project because it can be overwhelming. At the same time, I've been doing this my entire career. So in a sense, it is my comfort zone. So everything is there, but it's not there. Like, for example, I reached out to Patrick Bet David because I got in contact with his his sister's husband and his sister as well. And for that reason, you know, I'm telling Patrick and I'm telling his entire staff, like, listen, I'm on the cusp of breaking this worldwide record. There's nothing that I could do at this point. All I could do is start the Kickstarter to have the money to start closing the deals. That's it. In order to break that Guinness record for for crowdfunding, I have to literally explain to people, like, listen, I need this $250,000 just to pay Guinness for them to verify this. And once they do, of course, I'm going to have every major record label trying to sign me. Well, I need the legal representation for that, number one. From there, and during that process, I still need to go on tour. I still need to put together all of this new material, right? So these new songs and these new things that I have coming. So from the art festival, which is also going to help the live performances on the tour, all these tax write-offs are to prepare me for the tax liabilities that I'm going to have whether either I sign the deal or multiple deals. And, you know, depending on how the projects are able to move forward. So at the end of the day, you know, this is what it, uh, this is what it comes down to. So all these things at once, I wish I could go to Oprah which I haven't reached out to, but I'm, I'm this close to reaching out to her to say, look, Oprah, I broke this record. This is who I am. This is how the industry works. Of course, they're going to block me at every interval, but that's fine because I'm focused more on NFT technology and I'm bypassing the whole system. I don't have the $200,000 to verify with uh with Guinness. I don't have the 40, 50, 60,000 I need to make these digital cassettes. I have to go on tour. I'm doing these shows in America first before I go overseas. Then overseas, I have 500 shows that turned into 200 shows because of everything that's happening, all the adjustments after 
um, this pandemic, and I'm doing it all by myself, whereas I believe that I could appoint people closest to my heart, people that I trust, to handle the business, they cannot do research, they cannot generate leads, they cannot close deals, unless I do the research, generate the leads, put the proposals together, and have them be in charge of delivering it like a sales team, like a sales force, where I give you everything. I say, okay, go close this deal. So I'm doing all of this at the same time, negotiating what I deem to be the final frontier. The final frontiers is not just NFTs in the metaverse, and it's not just music and film. It's video games. Video games eclipse music and eclipse television and eclipse streaming and Eclipse Films. So everybody from the music industry is taking their catalogs and they're figuring out ways to turn them into film and docuseries and sitcoms and whatever. And the royalties are completely different. When you sign up to Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or what's the other one? Paramount Plus. Whatever, once you subscribe, whatever program you log on to first, they are accredited a royalty for your patronage, right? So if I download Disney Plus and I um, register and I first click on The Mandalorian, the creators from The Mandalorian, which would be Lucasfilm, whatever, they're going to get accredited for that. If I'm on Amazon Prime, and you download Amazon Prime and you register and you go and you watch um, Top Gun and I'm the creator of Top Gun or the newest film iteration of, of Top Gun, I'm going to get accredited to that. So the same way that a business is evaluated at 10 times EBITDA, right? A million subscribers is valued at 10 times EBITDA. So if you have a million subscribers, that subscribe to that DSP for your content, you have that royalty from those million subscribers, but you're not getting a dollar per subscription or per royalty. You're getting $10 per subscription and royalty because they estimate that they can generate a um, hundred times whatever the subscription amount is. So your royalty is 10%. So a million people subscribe to my independent film or whatever it is, that I'm releasing, and now I'm getting a mechanical royalty just for that. That's not including what I'm making off the actual content. So the reason why all these moguls are leaving the music industry with their catalogs, leveraging them to a BlackRock, uh, a Tencent, a Blackstone investment firm is because they see that this is going to be the future. So they're taking a song and turning it into a visualizer, into a music video that becomes a part of a series, a part of a documentary, a part of a short film that becomes a film. And now the money that this song is generating as a song is phenomenal. It's amazing. But what it can generate as a film is something completely different. So because of that, and again, me having this huge catalog with thousands and thousands of songs, Guess what each song is? It's a future movie. It's a future franchise. It's a future sitcom, future series. Now, I know this today in 2023. 
I plan to die in the next 119 years. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The next 90, 99 years? No, no, no. I plan to die in the next 79 years. So think about all of the film projects that can be developed now. I don't have to worry about sinking a deal for a television show, a commercial, short film, or film. Even though I'm going to do that in the process, just like I'm going on tour while Guinness verifies. Think about that song being turned into, beyond a visualizer, a music video, and a series, into a film. A film that is available on Amazon Prime or Paramount+. Plus. And after that contract expires, is now retailed in Tubi for free. So, this puts a lot into perspective. Because now, not only do I know the value of the music catalog as a collective and individually, but I know its value in film. And if I combine both values, the value of the visualizer musically, you know, the visual content and the audio content, I can quantify at a 16x EBITDA what the value is as a video game. Because there are so many software companies that are focused on video games that have all the technology to make bomb-ass games, but they don't have the content creatively. Some are willing to pay for big stories to make big games or to become part of big franchises. But the majority um, can afford a smaller story. And this is, again, where I come in because now... This catalog is completely different. So I'm not just going to go to Blackstone and say I have a music catalog. I'm going to go to BlackRock and say, listen to this portfolio. We have films. We have series. We have documentaries. We have docuseries. We have um, stream for, for, for content um, you know, material. We have uh, products. We have merchandise. We have fucking music. So all of these things come together, connected with the metaverse through the NFTs that connect to my metaverse online. And shout out to Apple with this new high-end um, device, right? Where you can not only connect to the matrix, connect to my metaverse, but then my metaverse connects to every other metaverse. And I am an owner of Polygon. I am invested in Polygon. So all the NFTs are either on Ethereum, on the Ethereum blockchain, or by default in Polygon. So this is a complete franchise here. We're talking about a complete brand. And because I'm a time traveler from the future, for me, it's easy to explain. But the average person does not process what the fuck I'm saying. They don't get it. 
that I know what I have is worth billions of dollars. How can I just have this conversation with the average human being? They don't get it. I understand that they don't understand. They don't have the background. They don't have the training. They don't have the education. They don't have the discipline. They don't understand that I'm at the forefront of this because I'm the artist and I have the music and I own all of it. I have full creative control. I can close my own deals. In the meantime, before we get the catalog put together for films, I'm going to be syncing these deals for television and, and any other type of sync deals. That's fine. That's temporary. That's short term. Long term, I already know the final frontier. So this tour is so important that it remains independent which is why I have to go to Kickstarter, why I have to go secure everything from um, Guinness, because what do you think is going to happen when everything is verified? The value is going to go 16x automatically. So why the fuck would I sign for 2 or $3 billion right now if I know that once that shit is certified, I could be signed for $20 billion? And again... Even if you take a $20 billion valuation, you divide it by 3.9, divide it by 4, we're still looking at 4 or $5 billion. I have that in NFTs right now. But the industry knows this. Financial institutions know this as well. So now you start to see this full understanding that sadly I don't have family members that understand this. They don't see how the entire network connects to deliver an experience with an extremely high attention to detail. Everything is formatted from A to Z. Like, okay, this is step one, step two, step three, step four. Now, in order to create brand awareness, we aim to connect with the world. So the tour is worldwide. I have every city, every venue, every place where I'm going to perform. And I have music for every single market. And I could do direct marketing in every single venue that I, that I perform in. On top of that, when you look at the exposure of BlackRock, right? The biggest financial institution that the world knows, right? I can penetrate every market that they're in. Why? Because the ultimate goal is to get BlackRock to become my business partners. Everything has a price. It's easy to determine the cost and the price of something. The value is something completely different. So, just like any competitor of, let's say, a big box retailer like Walmart, I'll give you the example with the Nintendo story. When Nintendo devised the plan to be in retail stores, they went to other big box retailers. When Sega came around, they went straight to the corporate headquarters. And wherever there was a Walmart, from their corporate headquarters to that Walmart, Sega of America bought every single billboard, every single radio ad, 
every single bus stop, et cetera, et cetera. And they threatened um, the retailers that they would open their own stores. So what happened? Walmart had to give them commercial real estate for them to place their Sega items. And what did they do? They took them out of business. It's as simple as that. Sega dominated for years being a newcomer with Sonic the Hedgehog. That's all they needed. They needed somebody to compete with Mario. That's who That's who Sonic is. So Sonic is faster than Mario and can do all kinds of shit that Mario cannot do. The graphics were better. The gameplay was better. The soundtracks were better. You know, Nintendo was more focused on the family, youth. Sega gave you everything. I intend to be the Sega genesis of the music industry. Because what is the norm, what is the common consensus, is what you know as Nintendo. So, even the concept of using their strongest weapon and their strongest ally, which is the DSPs and streaming, where I'm getting paid a fucking third of a third of a penny, I'm focused on NFT technology, therefore... I have nothing to gain from focusing on streaming. Streaming is money for marketing. For what? For my fucking NFTs. It's a promotional tool for me. There's no money in it for me. I don't have the outreach that Warner Brothers, Universal, and Sony has. I don't have the luxury of the monopoly that they have. Right? At the end of the day... I need to think outside of the box. So, not only do I have this huge catalog, which is my biggest investment. This is my life's work right here. I'm 40 years old, right? I also have, in the foreseeable future, the next catalog, which is about 1,500 records to 2,000 more. They're just not going to be done in one year. You know, for this year, as far as I can calculate, you know, I'll have my initial five, six hundred, which is, you know, a, a separate catalog. We'll call that the YT catalog. And that's going to be to secure the UM catalog, which is another four to six hundred records. And then those two catalogs are going to go to Apple Music directly depending on what we negotiate, um, the catalogs will go from ASCAP to BMI and back to, to BMI. So all these things are already established there. Like, I'll give you an example. For Taxi, they have the convention coming up the first week of November, right? Now, in this convention, they're going to be discussing NFTs. The person speaking is the CEO of Dismakers, which is a personal close friend of mine and who I'm partnering with to do the digital cassettes. So it's funny how I get to go to the convention. I'm going to have to fight for my slot to try to speak or triangulate from the event, which is going to be three or four days, to speak about NFT technology when I'm the fucking first artist to release his entire catalog on the blockchain as an NFT. Ain't that a bitch? 
what these motherfuckers are going to talk about in November. We're in fucking February. We're talking about nine months from now. I did in August uh, of 2021. So it hasn't even been two years. I already changed the music industry. There's no bigger proof that I can give you. At the same time, I need to partner up with Taxi because they've been a part of my entire career. That's the only way that I'm going to get these records into films. And some of the sync fees are as low as $300. Sometimes they go as high as $15,000 per song just to be on a thing, you know, just to be in a film or a short film. And then, you know, hopefully it will generate sales long term. But all of this just to gain positioning, to create brand awareness. You know, these are things that put everything into perspective. Now, me as a businessman, I can process this and the light bulb goes off because I'm thinking about new business opportunities. For my loved ones, that's not necessarily the case. We're going to take a quick pause. We'll be back with today's third segment. We'll be back in the New York Minute. And we're back. So, putting all of these things into perspectives, for me, everything is clear as day. Now, I have to walk with this inside of my spirit and my being. This is why my music is the way that it is, because I'm speaking from a position of power. I'm completely confident in my abilities. I could play you my music and I really don't have to do all this talking. I don't have to do all this persuasion. I don't have to do all this negotiating because the music is crazy. The music is so crazy that people can't deal with it. It's that good. You cannot tell me one of my records is bad. And out of just out of this batch of this 2,500 records, there's probably three for sure that I don't like. And... It's not that they're bad, they need work. Because they were the precursor, the foundation to other records that are fucking phenomenal. Now, 3 out of 2,500 ain't fucking bad. I'm still at 99.998 percentage of accuracy. Then, um, there's another 200-something songs that may need a little polishing. The songs are not bad. They just needed to be maybe recorded a little bit better. And because I record everything off the top of my head, I can't go back and fix something that I did naturally. It was organic. But even still, for me to give you over 2,000 records that are fucking flawless says a lot. So I'm shaking up all of the common consensus by representing everything that I'm doing. So guess what? When I fucking go to Kickstarter, this is what I have to say to the public. At times, I want to go live on Instagram. And I want to break all this shit down to my fans. But I cannot. I have to be selective when I speak of these things. Again, my podcast, this is my public ledger. Everything is here. It's conversation style. I'm learning from you all as much as you guys are learning from me. 
because I'm showing you from zero to a billion dollars or more. And that's the problem that people don't understand. Every day, all day, this is all I'm thinking about. This is what fuels the fire to create the music, to create the content. I got the magazine online on LinkedIn. I have the podcast through Spotify and Anchor. I have all the music on BandLab that you can fucking ever desire for an artist. I have the technology through my technology company. I'm into real estate. I'm into franchises. Just with the technology company, outside of NFT sales, I designed the car of the future. I designed an autonomous program. I designed a terrain program. One is called Radar Plex. One is called Sector Plex. I also designed the car of the future that has all of the fucking technology incorporated into its design. And even though I'm facing a major setback because I don't have access to the processor that I designed the system around, it doesn't matter. I already have a new version of it. It just took me another two years. So for me to have literally led a military competition for four and a half years out of five says a lot about what I already have. So Again, this is only the beginning. How do I convey this to the average human being? What am I supposed to do? Go on LinkedIn and put a post? Listen, I need to build a team. I have some fire here. I have the the, the new version of, of a flame. We need to put it together. You can't blame me for wanting to reach out to Oprah. Because... I don't know any other way to process all of this. Like I said, with my family member, he has the venue and all the connections. But that also is, it it comes with a package. It's a gift and a curse. Just because these people are now closest to me doesn't mean that I haven't done business with them in the past. Doesn't mean I haven't reached out to them or they haven't reached out to me. But now we have a bridge. We have a direct connection where we can sit down and speak on much different terms. The question becomes, do I want to do business with these people? It's one thing for me to have reached out to them or for them to have reached out to me in an independent um, consensus. But now that it's direct, how will that affect how we negotiate terms? I don't even want to burn the bridge. Because, in a sense, I'm not interested in speaking to the majority of those people. I am interested in keeping my distance from those majority uh, uh, of people in the industry. But there are a few diamonds here and there that may be able to incorporate with what I'm doing. And we may have an opportunity, but there are no guarantees. You have to give every person an opportunity. So again, it's a self-inflicted wound because I'm throwing yet another headache onto myself by managing all of these people. So I have to proceed with caution. I am Steve Jobs with the new iPhone. I know I got the new iPhone. You don't have it. I am the new fucking uh, Bill Gates with the new Microsoft Windows. I have it. You don't have it. Furthermore, with video games, 
I already decided I want to get into video games. That's going to be the final frontier, right? I'm going to build a company to design video games. And I'm going to write them. I may not program them, but I'm going to write them. So the common consensus thought would be, well, we don't just need the software. We need the hardware. And I automatically bypass that by saying, you know what? I'm going to start a division of my technology company that is going to work on apps. And what's going to happen is these games are going to be designed to be better on digital platforms. So why would I fucking focus on the hardware when everybody has a digital platform with fucking multiple core processors inside of each individual um, platform? If anything, a lot of good companies make a lot of good video games for mobile but they still are missing the the X factor. They're missing the juice. Some of the gameplay doesn't transfer as well to a, a digital mobile device as they do to the home consoles. So guess what gap I want to fill? That same fucking need. Even the context of films that I put together will impact the context of video games that I make. Because I get to create something completely new. And where I see a need, where I see a 1% chance, I apply 100% of my efforts. This is where I stand. And actually, that's going to be today's um, fucking podcast. Forget the module because we just had a breakthrough today. But you see, had I not sat down and selected a module and decided to discuss these concepts, this moment would never exist. I have to pull these beautiful thoughts from the ether as they're flowing through me. Mind you, I still haven't drank my cup of coffee. I've been sipping from, from, from my, my, my relatives. I have a business meeting when I'm going to be traveling long distance. So I have a chance to listen to my podcast and have my business meetings and, and I can listen to it on the way. But every single day, the picture becomes a little clearer. And with that clarity and with that position of power is the reality that I have to do this all on my own. I have to close all of these deals. So when my family members come to my house in their Corvettes, they cannot be mad that I have Porsches, Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Aston Martins, and Lotuses in my garage because I gave everybody the fucking opportunity to help me now. I don't need the help when the company signs the first fucking billion dollar deal. When I'm fucking Elon Musk and music, it's going to be too motherfucking late. But I also understand the social political pressures. I understand my culture and how my culture actually thinks. I get it. This is their norm. This is their day-to-day. You know, I have family members still worried about because my corporate job and my 401k and my IRA. Fuck that shit. Fuck that shit. You know, I can give you the example with my wife who's in the medical field. You know what's my mentality? Fuck all these business partners that we have. Let's open our own fucking OBGYN and have our own uh, pediatric office franchise. 
I drew that conclusion over 10 years ago. And for 10 years, I've been kicking myself in the nuts like, man, this is what we need to do. But see, all of my military designs are becoming civilian designs. So my terrain program and my autonomous program will be used to build the fucking medical technology equipment for advanced sonograms. So everything is interconnected. Mind you, all of my entertainment and technological investments are hedged by real estate. McDonald's is a real estate company. They make their profits on soda. They make most of their money in breakfast. Everything they do is leveraged towards real estate. It wouldn't seem like that's the case. You're not going to find that on their fucking spreadsheets. But that is the reality. Bill Gates owns more land than you can fucking imagine. In all parts of the world. That is the true business. Now the approach, the gateway to get there, makes you unique as an entrepreneur. But even catering every event where I perform live. You want a better opportunity for my food franchise? It doesn't exist. What's going to set my performances apart? You're going to taste 44 bomb-ass uh, kosher chicken recipes. You're not going to forget my performance. My super fans will have a wristband with a USB that connects them directly to the NFTs and connects them directly to the metaverse. Everything done on Polygon. Every NFT is programmed to buy a piece of the network. So it's the gift that continues to give. A percentage will go automatically to St. Jude's. Every performance, I'm going to fucking, you know, donate some money to charity. I don't need, I don't need to worry about taxes. If you worry about taxes, because you fucking stupid. Before I pay my money for some other bullshit that I can't see, touch, feel, or control, I'll donate that money to all churches and all charities. Give me all the fucking tax credits and benefits. I'm going to give all that money right back to education. I'm going to help people in need. People just like me. And all I had was a fucking dream. I come from Harlem in the Bronx. I come from zero. Nada. Dominican Republic. Spain before that. France before that. We didn't have shit. But my grandfather worked the land. He worked the fields. He bought the fields. He planted the fields. He took care of his family. He brought us to America. He had a dream. And here we are. I'm a motherfucking doctor, PhD, multiple times over. And I'm still in school. And I actually teach for free. Including in this podcast. So I ask myself the same question. What can I do today to achieve my dream? First of all, I need to go to my business meeting. I need to close that deal because I still have other businesses to manage. Tonight, I have a recording session. Can't do anything about that. It's mandatory. At the same time, in my downtime, I have to... Shoot some emails, make some phone calls, and close my own deals. Because if I don't reach out to Gap and I don't reach out to Nike and Reebok, if I don't reach out to Blackstone and BlackRock or Tencent, nobody's going to do it for me. Because the common denominator and, and, and the force that is the engine and the brake is me. And that 
you can take to the bank. Because it is my responsibility for future generations that I leave a succession plan. You know what I told my son yesterday? I said, listen, you're going to start working for the company. That's it. You got to learn the music business. You got to learn technology. You got to manage all this shit when I'm no longer here. There's no other way around it. A friend of mine owns one of the biggest telecommunication companies overseas. Another friend of mine is like his apprentice. He's having problems with his son, which is just a little older than mine's. So my first friend tells my second friend, yo, tell your son to come to the fucking radio station, to come to the television station. Let's teach him how to do this, that, and the third. My second friend is being hesitant, but that gave me an idea. That is the best way to do it. I got to teach my son this business. I got to spend that time with him because if I don't, who the fuck is going to do it? I'm going to trust him and his dreams at the hands of somebody else that doesn't love him like I do. It's not going to protect him like I do. Every decision that I make is for his future. So I feel the same way with my music career. Every decision that my company makes is for the greater good of my career. If I sign to Warner Brothers or if I sign to Universal or if I sign to Sony, they're going to make decisions based on what is best for their bottom line, their stockholders, their investors, and their investments. They're not there to fucking make it better for me. So I don't need to do business with people like that. Not only can I put a price on things, I know my value because I know my worth. And it's bigger than just write me a check and send me away to go fucking make you millions of dollars. For that, I cut you a motherfucking check and you go make me a few million dollars. And this is, again, where I stand. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all the time I have available for you guys today. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. May you have a wonderful and marvelous day today. May you conquer everything in your path. And may everything that you touch turn into solid gold. Always remember to dream big because dreams come true. It happened to me. And I know for a fact it's going to happen to you. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in and spending this quality time. I hope that you achieve all of your clearly written out and defined goals for the day. Tune in tomorrow and we will continue to chop it up and we'll see where this adventure takes us for tomorrow. Thank you so much and you have a wonderful day.